It could be argued that memories are all that we are. They are our only link to the past and the immediate aftermath of the present. We rely on our memories to orient ourselves in time and space. To remember, after all, is to know yourself. But what if your memories fail you? What if every recollection of every event that ever happened to you was unreliable? Or worse, what if it were possible for someone to implant false memories in your mind, memories of things that had never happened, making you believe them to be true, to be your own reality? This may sound like science fiction premise, but it is indeed possible. In fact, we know that it has happened to great masses of the population, as was seen in homes and hospitals across America in the late 1980s and early 90s during the strange time of the satanic panic, a time that shook our understanding of our own minds and forced us to reconsider our own ability to remember. Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Perta. On today's inaugural podcast, the first in a two-part series, we will explore the history and science behind false memory. Let's begin with a story. In 1995, a group of college students were asked to partake in a study involving the recollection of childhood memories. Each was presented with a booklet of four short stories from their own childhood as told by an older family member. The participants were then asked to write down and describe what they remembered about each event. At the end of the study, 29% of the participants individually claimed to have a memory for the exact same event, even though they had never met and had no relation to each other. The memory always involved being lost in a shopping mall, crying for an extended period of time, and being found by an elderly woman who reunited them with their families. Not an uncommon story, to be sure, but how, how was it possible that all of these people could recall an identical memory with an identical order of events? The answer was simple. The memory was not real. The researchers had planted it there. Even after they were told that each booklet contained a fabricated event, nearly all of this group continued to misidentify the fake story. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. For them, it was no longer fake. It had become a part of their memory. How is this possible? Let's start with the basics of memory formation. Memories are among the most important aspects of our psychology, as they define and dictate who we are, how we see ourselves, and where we come from. Like any mental process, memory is a function of the complete nervous system rather than of individual neurons, and happens when neurons fire together. Memories are formed during a process called long-term potentiation, when a series of neurons are trained to fire in the same order like a row of cannons.
The strengthening of the connections between these neurons increases the potential for them to fire together in the future. This helps to encode memories in the brain and to make them retrievable. These memories are then stored in the hippocampus and throughout the brain structures in a process called consolidation. The most primitive of our memory systems are the three sensory registers, which are responsible for our perceptions of the world around us. Each register collects and retains information for a specific sense. Visual, also called iconic, auditory, also called echoic, and haptic, or touch, information. This stored information becomes part of more complex memories, which fall into two main categories, non-declarative or implicit memory, and declarative or explicit memory. Implicit memory is the kind of memory we show through our behavior but don't remember forming, like the knowledge of how to walk or how to throw a ball. We can do it without thinking through the steps or remembering how we learned the action. This kind of memory is usually formed through interaction with our environment, rather than through more internal processes. Explicit memory, on the other hand, is created through personal knowledge and experiences, and can be described. Explicit memory can be broken into two parts, semantic memory, which is not tied to a specific time or place, such as the name of your best friend, and episodic memory, which is related to time and place, like the time you fell off your bike. All of these types of memory help to form the most overarching and personally defining type, autobiographical memory. This is the story of your life, and is deeply intertwined with your sense of self. Autobiographical memory is similar to episodic memory, and indeed contains episodic memories, but it is, it turns out, a separate type. Evidence for this distinction can be clearly seen. Some people with dense amnesia can still recall broad phases of their lives and general event information, even though they have lost all memory for specific episodes. Whereas episodic memories are often confined to single events, Autobiographical memories are far more constructive and often span multiple events. They are uniquely about your life, and they belong only to you. Or do they? As shown by false memory research, it is possible for someone other than yourself to implant an experience in your past and make you believe that you lived it. After all, what is the past but a collection of intangible memory traces? And if we accept that, then why wouldn't we imagine that these traces, ephemeral and insubstantial as they are, can be tinted and shaded and altered by our own very thoughts? The most famous researcher in the realm of false memory implantation is Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. For over 40 years, she has conducted many studies showing the evidence for the creation of false memories, among them the studies cited at the top of this podcast. Her first groundbreaking research in the field happened in 1974 when she and John Palmer conducted a study in which they suggestively altered subjects' memories for a car accident. The participants were shown a video of a two-car accident, then asked to describe the accident and estimate the speed of the cars. The researchers' questions, however, were worded in a variety of ways using different verbs. Some people were asked how fast the cars were going when they contacted each other others when they hit or even smashed into each other. Incredibly, people who heard the more violent-sounding verbs, smash or hit, actually recalled the cars as moving faster. Their memory for the accident appeared to be altered by simple word usage. 
What Loftus and Palmer discovered in this initial study has major implications for the formation of memory. Is it possible that things said to us or asked of us after something has happened to us can change what we remember? Can others influence how we see our own lives and the events that we live through to the extent that our very recollections, the moments which we hold dear, the things we've seen, the experiences that have shaped us, can be changed and shifted until they no longer hold their original truth? These questions are alarming to consider when we think about ourselves, but we are, in fact, not the most vulnerable population when it comes to false memory implantation. No, there is another group whose members generally have a far more tenuous grasp of reality, who are regularly encouraged to engage in fabrication and make-believe, and have a much more limited ability to differentiate between fact and fiction which leaves them much more susceptible to memory transformation and creation. I'm talking, of course, about children. (laughs) The biggest difference between the memories of children and adults is disorganization, which prevents children from being able to encode memories in a way that makes them accurate or retrievable. Preschool-age children in particular have great difficulty with truthfulness and accuracy. Jackson? Did you do that? Um, no. He did that. No, I did not. This is because children have a hard time with something called source monitoring, or the ability to clearly determine the original source of a memory. This leads to mistakes in recollection known as source monitoring errors. These errors are often generated by the classic misinformation paradigm, which has three elements. First, an event takes place. Then, some piece of misinformation is introduced, perhaps through a conversation with someone or a question that prompts rethinking of the initial event in a slightly different way. Finally, a memory test occurs, which can be as simple as the recounting of the story. Because of the misinformation presented after the event, however, the memory test reveals that the memory for the event itself has been changed. For children, this happens very easily. There are two factors required for the change in memory to happen. First of all, the new information or misinformation must be plausible. And secondly, it must come from a reliable source. Children have a much harder time distinguishing these two factors. What is plausible to a child may seem completely incredible to an adult. And children see most people, particularly anyone older than they are, as reliable sources. Additionally, children are much more likely to find themselves in situations where adults or reliable sources are prompting and even suggesting things to them in an effort to get them to respond. Jackson? Many grown-ups think this behavior is helpful. Did you do that? But the fact is that it can result in untruths as children struggle to say the right thing. Are you sure about this? And can even lead to false memories as children begin to believe that their own memory must be wrong if mommy or daddy is saying so. Because I don't know if I believe you. As a matter of fact, various studies have shown that repeating a question during an interview with a child sends a message to the child that their first response was undesirable and encourages them to change their original answer. This is also true for adults. Unfortunately, it has been shown that first responses are more likely to be accurate, so this very method decreases truthfulness over time. An excellent example of the suggestibility of young children's memory is called the Mousetrap Study. It was conducted by Stephen Cece, Mary Curchow Hoffman, Elliot Smith, and Elizabeth Loftus in 1993. 
In this study, researchers interviewed preschool children about various events, only some of which had actually occurred. One of the fictitious stories was about the child getting a finger caught in a mousetrap and having to go to a hospital. A researcher then questioned the child seven to ten times over the course of ten weeks. The questioner told the child that not all the events had truly occurred and to think real hard and try to figure out whether each story was true or not. After ten weeks, a new researcher asked the children which events had really happened. Nearly two-thirds of the children, a full 58%, recounted a false story about at least one of the fictitious events, and fully 25% claimed that most of them were true. Even more compelling is the fact that many children were able to tell detailed narratives describing the made-up events. For example, quote, The mousetrap was in our house because there's a mouse in our house. The mousetrap is down in the basement next to the firewood. I was playing a game called Operation, and then I went downstairs, and I said to Dad, I want to eat lunch, and then my finger got stuck in the mousetrap. My daddy was down in the basement collecting firewood. My brother pushed me into the mousetrap. It happened yesterday. I went to the hospital yesterday. The entire mousetrap story, of course, had been written by the researchers, but this did not prevent the children from creating lengthy tales to support their recollection of it. One boy even recounted it as his own memory, even after his father explained to him that it had never happened. This issue can have grave effects on the lives of others. In fact, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, it can cause outright public madness. During the late 1980s and early 1990s, it led to the questioning, investigation, and even incarceration of hundreds of people across the United States as a wave of chaos known as the Satanic Panic washed over the country. Ignited by accusations of child abuse at the hands of cult members masquerading as caregivers, the Satanic Panic ruined countless lives and reputations and incited a mass craze for the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder throughout the psychiatric community, as well as the sudden retrieval of thousands of memories that adults claimed to suddenly recall about their own abuse as children. In the years that followed, it was revealed that many of these recovered memories, as they came to be called, were actually implanted by psychiatrists and psychologists. Join me in two weeks for the second part of the False Memory Suite as we explore the satanic panic. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perta, with writing help from Mario Rivera, sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Cast. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. Psychologia.